episode 44 with Alex Epstein. This is an episode we, I also try to record a couple times now, um, but schedules didn't match, but we finally got it organized. This is, I, you know, I guess when people are, you know, framed in a certain way, you know, when you find them in the media and everything, you know, you, you kind of put them in a box and, you know, I, I looked at Alex as, oh, yep, an energy guy, you know, definitely, definitely an intelligent thinker. Um, but I, I didn't sort of picture like, you know, philosopher in my head. That wasn't the first thing that came to mind. And as you listen to this episode, you'll see that that's sort of the rabbit hole we go down. Like we, we go and discuss you know, kind of like philosophy, first principles, and also start to explore the, the psychology of how uh, modern humans and kind of the the underlying anti-human movement um, that, you know, manifests in the green movement and the, you know, the, the carbon neutral movement and the no human impact movement, um, you know, how they manifest in the world and what, what the underlying psychology and philosophy is for those things, why it's so confused, insidious, etc. Um, so we obviously also talk about, um, you know, energy and how fossil fuels, for example, are not only reliable, but because they're energy dense, it's the most efficient way to extract and use energy in the world as opposed to, you know, the, the, the madness. And I mean, I call it madness, um, you know, on on the surface, you know, let's, let's just call it questionable that, you know, what Alex Epstein calls the unreliables or, you know, in mainstream, they're called the renewable energy sources like solar and wind in particular, which are actually, you know, economically non-viable, but also energetically non-viable in terms of the trade-offs that they represent when it comes to uh, drawing energy from those dilute sources, you know, the amount of resources that have to go into it up front, um, you know, the economic cost, the land cost, the uh, transmission cost, the um, the storage cost, and all these other things, you know, that people seem to sweep under the rug and ignore uh, in a bid to try and uh, justify the existence of, you know, the unreliable renewables. So th th this is a really fascinating conversation, very broad, not your typical, uh, I guess, Alex Epstein conversation. I haven't listened to all his podcasts, but um, I hope you enjoy it. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Definitely follow Alex Epstein's work. Um, sorry, see, I say Epstein. Um, it's Alex Epstein. Um, I've put all of the uh, the links in the show notes. Um, you'll find him on Twitter at Alex Epstein. Um, and and I'll see you on the next episode of the Wake Up Podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode. 44 of the wake up podcast and i have uh, alex epstein who is a philosopher energy expert <laughs> author of the moral case for fossil fuels founder of the center for industrial progress um and i'm sure the list goes on um i like how you're 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 laughing about it I, people don't know we're just i was just sort of making fun of titles in general uh before this i always Indeed. feel like i do speeches and I feel like the mm -hmm. longer the intro, just the more bored people are. And once you once you get started, people are going to know whether you know what you're doing or not. So you might the, as well just get into it. I know the the titles like are always embarrassing for me whenever I get up on stage to give a talk or something. And you know, especially especially the people who haven't really done the research, for example. So they've like just cut and paste something off LinkedIn, and they can just fucking rambling opening a few, yeah. and I'm like. And yeah, mispronounce, mispronounce yeah. the word. The, the one exception I found was 
when I first started the Center for Industrial Progress in 2011, you know, I mean, this had just been an idea I came up with in a meeting once. And then a, mm -hmm. a month or two later, it's like a real thing. And then the first time mm -hmm. I got introduced as, oh, this is president of the Center for Industrial Progress, like, wow, I made that. Like Whoa. I turned those words <laughs> yeah. into a thing that others are, are using. And that one was barely an institution. But you know, now it's been an institution forever. So it just becomes like, okay, let's let's talk about real stuff. Yeah, interesting. interesting. That actually kind of brings me to the first question I wanted to ask, which is, you know, your background is kind of an Ayn Randian objectivist, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of in, in that space. But before we actually get there, can you tell us about the um, the the Center for Industrial Progress? Like, can you, because I mean, that's 10 years now. So I, I don't know much about it, but can you tell us, you know, what the premise was originally, um, what it's evolved yeah. into? Definitely. So the premise was that there needed to be an alternative, a positive alternative to the green movement, which I think mm -hmm. is more accurately called the anti-human impact movement. Yeah, the eco-terrorist. Yeah. Well, that's a subset of the anti-human impact movement. Yeah, because you know the idea of, of green, if we're talking about Ayn Rand, it's it's what she would call a package deal. So what it's trying to do is put over something bad by associating it with something good. And so in this case, it's trying to put over the very bad thing of eliminating human impact on the earth by packaging it together with certain kinds of impact that we wanna minimize or eliminate. Like, you know, we wanna minimize pollution when we can, we wanna minimize the destruction of natural beauty. But if you call that being green or minimizing our impact, you're blending that together with opposing farms and factories and buildings. And this is just rampant in our society. We as a society are really pursuing avidly, usually unknowingly, this goal of eliminating impact. If you look at every area, the obsession is just how can we not impact the earth? And my view is like, this is totally wrong, but it's not enough just to attack it directly. There needs to be a positive alternative. And back in 2011, I would have put the alternative more as industrial progress because it's capturing the idea of intelligent productive impact on the earth and that's a good mm -hmm. thing now i would frame it more broadly in terms of human flourishing so we want to advance human flourishing which means we want to increase people's ability to live to their fullest uh, potential like long safe healthy happy opportunity filled lives and then an aspect of that is that we embrace massive intelligent impact on earth and of course we want to avoid uh, anti-human impacts wherever we can. But the ba the premise was there needs, I had this just, I was in a, a meeting at my, um, where I used to work at the Ayn Rand Institute. And I would just remember like we were discussing things and I just had this idea, there needs to be like a center for industrial progress. And I was like, and I need to run it. There needs to be this, I just, I thought like, oh, I had to do this. And it was definitely, I still have a very good relationship with the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm actually speaking at their conference this summer. Uh, but it was just, it was that kind of idea where I felt like this, like I need to own this. It can't be, oh, I'm asking anyone for permission or like somebody else is overseeing it. It's like, I have this vision and I want to pursue it. Brilliant. I mean, I mean, you know, when I look at the world and, you know, I think about, you know, what, what we're really suffering from or what we're really lacking is, you know, the, the hero archetypes in Ayn Rand stories, you know, people who are willing to go out and take on a mission or a vision like this, you know, that, that is grounded in some sort of first principles and not just, you know, political fucking buffoonery that, you know, mm -hmm. sounds nice on the surface, but doesn't have any substance. So I, I guess on the topic of- well, I'm curious, like, do you think, uh, actually, I, I, I just, yeah, let's, this is an interesting topic because 
I think what you see no shortage of is like the pursuit of lofty declared visions of various kinds. And I think you see this even more so there's, if you've ever seen that show Silicon Valley, even if you haven't, there's this cliche that begins on the first episode, which is just like every single founder of the company, whatever they're doing is like, and our goal is to make the world a better place. And it's this sort of like, everyone is saying like, oh, I have this lofty vision, but where I think a lot of it breaks down and where I think anyone trying to do something big has to really introspect is asked like how much of this is because I really believe that something is valuable. Like I believe it's mm -hmm. valuable for the world in the world versus I want the status of being somebody who's seen as changing the world. And I think very unfortunately, a lot of bad stuff happens because people want, they want the status of being a world changer. And that often includes, they wanna be a world changer. Ironically, in exactly the way the world is telling them to. So it's like, oh, I wanna be, I wanna change the world by pursuing the goal of carbon neutrality only through solar panels and wind turbines and batteries. It's like, well, are you really changing the, but it's, 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 it's such a status uh, type of thing. And I think we always need to watch out for that, particularly more ambitious people. Very true. There's, I mean, yeah, we, you know, there's one famous guy that, you know, I don't even want to mention his name because he's a moron that I don't want to, you know, that I think fits that, um, that fits that bill. But to, to that point, I think, I think it's a blend of two things. So, so you've got, you know, exactly what you just mentioned there is that, you know, the, 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 they think they're contrarians, you know, they think they're doing something, you know, like against the grain or that is, you know, um, kind of like, you know, the, the original, um, fuck you, I won't do what you tell me from Rage Against the Machine, you know, and today it's sort of mm. become like, you know, fuck you, I'll do exactly what you tell me. Um, mm. and, and kind of like, it, it's, it's almost the, you know, the, the counterculture has become the, the primary culture. Um, and it's, it's no longer, um, you know, they've become the mainstream and they think they're doing something, you know, important so so it becomes a status symbol based on you know where the herd is going and what's politically correct and everything but i also think you know that there's a lack of time spent uh on understanding first principles and ensuring that what that which you're pursuing has some sort of consistent thread from you know like either a priori truths or some sort of foundation that is stable. Like it's very nice to say up here. And I, I did a podcast a while ago saying that, you know, I believe equality is the biggest scam, you know, ever perpetrated, you know, mm -hmm. on, you know, in humanity, because, you know, nothing, nothing in nature or the universe of humanity, there's nothing fucking equal about us. You know, there's, there's a very different, big difference between fairness and equality, you know, and, and the only way you can get equality is if you bring everybody down to the same level because you can't force people up, right? So inequality and particularly dynamic inequality is how the world thrives. Like you see it in all complex systems, but it sounds really nice to say, oh, you know, we should pursue equality. So so what people are doing is they're sort of pursuing this, you know, this, um, this easy surface level, you know, nice little shiny thing without actually taking the time to inquire about, you know, what does that actually mean? Does it have any substance? Is it, you know, grounded in some sort of first principle? Like, does it have a foundation upon which we can build? And nobody wants to ask those questions anymore because, you know, things like struggle and pain and effort and everything are vilified as sh things that we should avoid. You know, like what's do, the do easiest part? Do you think that's, uh, sorry, uh, well, let's talk about that in a minute. I just want to talk about what you just mentioned because there's a lot of, I think, important yeah. stuff there in terms of 
So I'd think of this as, you know, definitely you want to be in the broadest sense reflective on what goals you're choosing and particular and, and what, what types of actions you're taking to achieve those goals, particularly if you have any kind of historical perspective. One thing that rightly scares the hell out of me and doesn't scare many people nearly enough is the fact that most majorities, even majorities of smart people in history are what we would regard as totally wrong. So I think that should scare people. Like you look at the past and you just think, oh yeah, well, like racism was viewed as totally moral and scientific, or at least substantially so by, you know, many uh, smart people. I mean, the 20th century just had just unbelievable amounts of mass murder, including emanated, including in Germany, which was regarded as the most sophisticated place in the world intellectually. So just the comfort that people take in quote unquote consensus positions, and they're always even consensus as revealed by their direct channels, not even like they even discover the consensus, which we talk about with climate or other things, where often what we're told is the consensus is not even a consensus. And even if it was a consensus, it doesn't mean um, it's right. And what, what this implies at minimum is you wanna be very reflective and inquisitive about what you're pursuing in life and how. And this goes back to is, is the motive really an independent view that this is creating value in reality or is it status? Because when it's status, then the default thing is just take whatever goals and whatever types of actions the society says uh, are good and just and just do them. And so in the realm of, uh, you talk about equality, but in, you know, in the realm of energy and climate, it's just remarkable how everyone takes the goal as, yeah, let's eliminate fossil fuels or eliminate our CO2 emissions. Like that's the number one thing we should be focused on as a society. Nobody thinks, wait, is that really the number one thing? Like is it even a thing, but is that really the number one thing? Like billions of people are desperately poor, like optimizing for eliminating CO2. Is that really going to be, so there's no thought about that, the goal. And, but even then the actions to achieve the goal, it's you achieve it via renewable, which means solar and wind specifically. So you don't use nuclear, you oppose hydroelectric. And so both of these, I mean, to put it charitably are very questionable. I mean, the idea that your overall goal is let's eliminate CO2 emissions and that you're going to restrict yourself to solar panels and wind turbines in particular, which you can notice a bunch of obvious uh, challenges to. But yet that is considered, you know, if you look at some of the smartest people, smartest companies, I mean, you take like Jeff Bezos, who's in my view, an incredibly smart person, one of the greatest productive geniuses in history, maybe from a purely like competent standpoint, I, my view, which is not fully a professional view, but the, maybe the most skilled CEO in the history of human beings and has a father with a background in the oil and gas industry and has said in interviews that solar can't possibly power the earth, nevertheless still has, you know, took over a stadium, named it Amazon Climate Pledge Arena, and then has publicly said, we're gonna pursue this via renewables with no mention of nuclear. So even somebody like that is, is doing it. And so it just, it shows, you know, and there's somebody with unlimited, I mean, completely unlimited means, but, and who is a reflective guy in, you know, many, many ways. I mean, he's sure more than I am in a lot of ways, but, but in terms of like his basic goals, and then the basic types of actions he's gonna to take to achieve them, they're unbelievably conventional. And again, the conventional goals and actions uh, are very dubious. So it's, it's, it's not a coincidence. It's not like, oh yeah, 95% of the people just believe these because they're so compelling. It's, it's like, that's because what 
we're given them and we're given very superficial, not very persuasive reasons, but the fact that everyone believes them and the fact that there's a lot of status to be gained from adhering to them, that proves decisive. Yeah, interesting. So, so yeah, okay. So, so in that sense, that's probably the, the overriding force in that case. Um, you know, and, and I, I think by and large, um, I guess what I'm hearing there is that irrespective of how deep someone chooses to think and, you know, how, you know, first principled and everything they are, that the force, the, the overarching force of, you know, being politically correct or the status play or whatever, it seems to even push the intelligent of us into uh, parroting these same points about, you know, renewable energy and everything, which and, and I, I guess I could agree. Lives there. I mean, you mm. just think about how many people's, you know, how many smart people are working on things that I can't prove this yet. We'd have to talk about the details of these, but I think most, a huge number of people are just wasting their time working on mm. very unpromising technologies and, and particularly likely to be uneconomic technologies. And it's often the smartest people, actually a counter example that I found notable. There's a very, very smart guy named uh, Jacob DeWitt, who runs a company called Oklo, which is a nuclear company that is doing some exciting stuff. And I remember I met him and it was so striking that, oh my gosh, here's like a really smart guy. And he's the type of guy you would expect to go into one of these fields that's not promising. Today you would. It's, you know, energy is somewhat unique because energy is not, I mean, energy is a, actually a cautionary tale because if you look at energy is incredibly guided by the moral, the problematic moral framework of the society, which really says that our goal should be to eliminate our impact on nature. That's like the driving thing in our society. And energy is totally over being overtaken by that. Whereas if you look at other fields, like at least for a while, like whether you're creating social networks or phones, those have been very peripheral concerns. Now with the rise of what they call ESG, it's becoming a little bit more central. Um, but you know, you look at other fields, like fields my friends have gone into, and succeeded in, and you know they're not facing the same kind of pressure to be to be green, and thus they do really innovative things because they're free to just pursue what's profitable, which means really what's productive. But in in energy, it's not true. So I was just so impressed to see this really smart, innovative guy who clearly could have you know started a cylinder or maybe even a more successful version of that, mm -hmm. uh, but he chose to go into nuclear. I'm, I always find that you know, as, as a, like a social exercise, I always loved those aberrations, like the person who could be successful on the status quo, yet chose to go a different direction versus the person who's just kind of like a loser and outcast. And it's just like, oh, they want an alternative thing because no yeah, one yeah. would want them. Uh, so, but we would rather be in a society where you didn't have those, those bad forces. And then just one other force is that, you know, in the educational system or anti-educational system, which I think most of what we have today is the, you know, it, it very early, the degree to which you encourage and, and teach, and how to teach is a question, but teach independent thinking has a huge uh, impact on these things because it's really setting you up for how much are you gonna think about the world? How much are you going to question things? And I think there are numerous forces where people are just told, like you shouldn't question things and, um, you know, which you can talk about in terms of conventional religions, but also secular religions where people are like, oh, you can't, like you're told when you're seven 
that, mm. oh, we're destroying the planet and you should write a letter to the president and something like that. And it's just like, oh, you've totally taken that on faith. And even your whole focus on, oh, the planet is something above us that we can quote destroy and we should sacrifice it. Like that's a whole perspective. So there's just this so much, so much what Ayn Rand would call second-handedness. So not our mm. intellectual dependence. And I think those two work together a lot because if you grow up and you're not taught intellectual independence and you just you're taught to just believe and follow all the conventional things, at least on the big issues, and then you're in a society where there's a lot of status rewards for doing something, why are you going to question that? It really takes, it takes two, you can't expect that of most people. And I like to have societies where the dynamics are in place where not only the exceptional people do good things. I like this, the dynamics to be in place if possible, where even kind of the average person is incentivized to do like more independent thinking and, you know, in, including reflecting um, on all these basic issues. Yeah, well, that that would lead me into a Bitcoin discussion, but let's save that for later. <laughs> okay. Um, so so where, where do you, um, so I guess we, we, we've got these, you know, threads or these forces that, you know, that drive people into, you know, energy derangement syndrome and fiat derangement syndrome and all of this stuff. Um, you know, where, where, you know, some people come out and say, oh, look, it's a conspiracy. It's the Bilderbergs and the lizard people that are doing this, you know, then, you know, someone else will come out and say, yep, it's just a bunch of morons who, you know, uh, like confusing themselves and, you know, pushing agendas or whatever. Like, what, what do you, what do you think, is like why do you think the sort of anti-human sentiment and and the 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 clearly you know you said questionable but i would say moronic you know push for you know renewables and things like that like where does that sort of stem from and what, what do you think helps um helps that message like you know whether in education or in media or in politics and all this sort of like why is that being spread like the, do these idiots not understand that they're gonna you know drive the world towards you know complete energy collapse and we're all going to die of fucking starvation it's like it's not a it's not an intelligent path to um to head down so, so what, what do you think causes the derangement well, I think a lot of what's going on is that so i wouldn't call a lot of these things idiotic i think a lot of what's going on is that there are very <laughs> bad ideas that are kind of led by a relatively small group of people who know that they are anti-human ideas and embrace that, but they have been put forward in the world as, as pro-human uh, pro ideas. So I think mm -hmm. the basic, and, if you th and so I, the, I, I put all of this under what I call the, the anti-impact framework or anti-human impact framework. So I think there's basically a certain framework that serves as a starting structure for our thinking that most of us are using, but we don't really know that we're using it. And part of the framework is to conceal uh, what we're doing. So that's a very abstract uh, intro to it. But if you just take like, I think the core, uh, you know, the core elements of the anti-impact framework are, you know, number one, the idea that our goal should be to eliminate human impact on the rest of nature. And as I said before, this goal is everywhere. Every field we are focused above all on eliminating human impact. You look at an energy, what's our number one goal? It's like eliminating our impact on climate. Like that's the number one thing, but it's not just there. You look at why are we hostile to nuclear energy? Why are we hostile to hydro? Why are even, there's hostility to solar and wind. People claim that, oh, solar and wind are the salvation, which I think is completely indefensible. But even there, 
that whole anti-fossil fuel movement doesn't seem too concerned that it's really hard to build these solar panels and wind turbines and infrastructure. Like there's no plans at all for the materials. There's no plans for building the infrastructure, the transmission lines at the way. So we have this, in energy is just an example, we have this whole field where the, the whole driving force is let's stop impact, let's stop impact, let's stop impact. And that is just considered totally okay. Like that's considered totally okay. But even what's though- what's the incentive for that though? I don't get what the incentive to that is. Sorry for cutting you off there, but it's like- what? Well, I think, so what's the incentive if you get, because I don't think most people, like I think if I say that, many people say, oh, well, that is kind of true, but I didn't really think about it. Because each one, if you notice, like each one has its own kind of pro-human justification. So with fossil fuels, it's like, oh, well, the CO2, that's gonna you know heat up the planet and make it unlivable. You're like, okay, great. That's why you oppose fossil fuels. But then it's like, oh, but nuclear, you would love that, right? Oh, no, 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 that's radiation. And you're like, okay, but levels of radiation are not a problem at all. It's actually safer. And they're like, oh no, the waste. And it's like, okay, the waste, why? Because it lasts a long time. Yeah, but it's pretty benign. We know how to deal. And it's like, they'll bring up another type of impact and it kind of seems pro-human, but it's like, okay, you have a reason there. And then hydro, it's like another one, like, oh, maybe the dam could burst. Okay, that's kind of pro-human, but if it could save the world from CO2, which you said is so bad, would that be wouldn't it be worth it? And then you can see like these threads of, oh no, but they really seem concerned with the free flowing rivers more than the people who need electricity. And with the solar and wind, it's like, oh yeah, this takes up the landscape and it's killing these birds and stuff. So I don't think it's, but each one has its own kind of plausibility. It's like, oh, it's ruining mm -hmm. our beautiful view. But if you look at it overall, it's like, oh no, we're opposing every form of energy and the dominant thread is this impact. But so part of what's going on which goes on with a lot of the stuff is there's always this pro-human disguise that anti-human policies have. And I think that's just a universal thing throughout history that anti-human ideas are always disguised in pro-human ways. And there are many, many uh, clever forms of, of doing it. And one I mentioned already, which is the idea of packaging together something anti-human or something pro-human. So you say like green, or you'll say protect the environment or save the planet. Mm -hmm. We sustainability, think it means, oh, yeah. Oh, that means, yeah, we can talk about that one too. Um, that one, we think it means, oh yeah, like we're going to have a really good planet for us. And in reality, no, it's like, we're going to have an untouched planet saved from us. But like it's, it, so the goal is being uh, distorted in that way. And so you ask like, so I think for most people, a substantial part of it, not all of it, but is this pro-human disguise, particularly if the pro-human disguise if the positive of that is not being owned by somebody else. And this is a key reason why I've done the work that I've done in terms of having a positive alternative is a key part of my work is, yeah, we do want a beautiful world. We do want a safe environment. We do want a clean environment. And we achieve that through energy and through development and through mm -hmm. mastery of nature. So it's allowing people to have, so the, the genius of the green movement was that they owned this issue of environmental quality and safety and the pro-capitalism side never owned that. So people felt like, oh yeah, this is an important concern. And these guys are making a big deal of it. And I agree it's an important concern and there's no alternative. So I guess I'm gonna embrace these guys. And yeah, they seem to be a little too opposed to factories and they seem to oppose too much and they seem to be extreme, but hey, I wanna protect the environment too, right? So that's another thing where it, 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 they have these pro-human concerns and then they monopolize them and then they package them with these bad things. I think that's most people, a lot of what's uh, going on. I think the other thing that's going on 
that applies to everyone is what I call this delicate nurture view of nature, which is the idea that nature is uh, stable, sufficient, and safe. So it doesn't change too much. It gives us what we need and it's gonna keep us safe as long as we don't impact it. And you see this view everywhere, like from the Lion King to ecology textbooks, and it's a totally false view. Nature is not like that at all. It's actually dynamic, deficient, and dangerous. I call it wild potential, not, not a delicate nurture. But we have this belief, and because we have this belief, what it does is it makes us, um, when we see these policies to eliminate human impact, one thing is we're not too worried about it because we don't realize how much of how good our lives is, is impacting the earth. We're just like, oh yeah, if we don't do anything, it's all going to be natural. Like we'll get Evian and Fiji and you know, they portray themselves as natural versus no, no clean water for you if you're living in a natural place or even uh, very, you know, very little available food. The other thing is if you, so delicate nurture, you don't see the benefits uh, of energy and more broadly of impacting the world because you kind of have this baseline view that, oh, everything will be good if we don't do much. And then the other thing, an even more powerful thing, is you're incredibly susceptible to catastrophe claims. Because if you think the world is this delicate nurture that exists in this delicate balance, then the number one threat to your well-being is us impacting nature. And so what happens is people, whenever they hear that something impacts nature, particularly some side effect like CO2 or radiation, uh, you know, or some air pollution, there's this tendency to what I call catastrophize it, which, and that involves two elements. So one is to wildly overstate or overestimate the actual nature of the impact. So with CO2, it would be like thinking it's 10 times more powerful than it is. Like people just have no, mm -hmm. um, like no actual sense. I do believe it impacts climate, but they just think it's like this overwhelming force that's really the earth is hotter than ever. So they, they yeah. overstate the actual impact. But the other thing they do, is they don't see our ability to master the impact if it's negative. And then I point this out with climate, that climate-related disaster deaths, so from floods and storms and wildfires, et cetera, they're down 98% over the last century as CO2 emissions have risen dramatically. Now, why is that? Well, one thing is the CO2 emissions have had nowhere near the scale of impact that people think, certainly negative impact that people think. But the main thing is that we've used our minds and in particular energy from fossil fuels, machines powered by fossil fuels to make the naturally dangerous climate very safe. So we've mastered climate, but just ask how many people know that climate deaths are down and how many people even think of climate mastery when they think of fossil fuels, like look at almost with a few exceptions, even any fossil fuel company, when they talk about climate, they will never talk about how they actually protect us from climate, never. They only talk about negatives. And so part of that, a lot of that is this delicate nurture premise that everyone just believes, oh yeah, we live in this perfect delicate balance. The planet is perfect until we screw it up. And so, yeah, if we were impacting things, that's going to lead to catastrophe. So if these people are eliminating our impacts, they must be helping us. So if you combine this idea, if you're packaging the idea of eliminating impact with a good environment and you're owning that issue, and then you're putting forward this idea that impact is going to destroy the delicate nurture that nurtures you, like that makes it very, so that's a lot of how this, this framework works. And the other thing which I can talk about if you want is sort of why the leaders believe this, because the leaders know that most of this stuff isn't true. Like they know that eliminating impact means eliminating humans, just like if you eliminated bear impact, that means you're eliminating bears, like eliminating human impact means eliminating humans. Uh, but the leaders, so the leaders know this, most people don't know this, but the leaders know this, and yet they support it. And that's an interesting set of motives. 
that's that's where I wanted to go because like everything you've described is basically what makes this you know a a popular you know mm -hmm. model of the world right and, and that's what gets you know the, the the general populace on board with it um yes but yeah like what, what I'm interested in is you know the whoever is packaging this um together yeah what, what their thoughts are but before before you answer that I just wanted to make one point about the um the delicate nurture thing is I've always um, you know, before I discovered your work or any of that sort of stuff, I've always kind of envisioned, you know, a spectrum between like completely wild nature, like the jungle um, on one side of the spectrum. Then you've sort of got the, 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 the dry concrete jungle of like a, you know, of an ugly fucking city, but then you've sort of got the garden in the middle and like sort uh -huh. of mastery for me is like the garden is like, you need to weed the garden. You need to like, you know, keep it clean. You need to, you know, trim the shrubs and all this sort of stuff to, to keep it beautiful. But it's kind of like a, a blend of both. Like if you let, if we go too far on one side, you know, we, you know, I, I've, I've been in some really ugly cities like San Jose and Costa Rica is the ugliest fucking city I've ever been to, or, you know, Sao Paulo in Brazil, but it's just like all decrepit, ugly ass buildings that have been, you know, like the, the state has basically destroyed, you know, nature. <laughs> Uh, in the process and, and you know that's sort of one side of the spectrum but then you know on the other side like I've been to you know places like that of the jungle and it's kind of got its novelty in the beginning but man you know once you like <laughs> fall over and fuck yourself up and everything like you know bugs and mosquitoes and shit like you're like fucking hell you know like it really is important for humans to actually you know to, to form you know some sort of um you know livable structure around them and that's why I kind of always envision you know the garden as and you could argue like you know this this almost has a um you know a religious element to it like you know the garden of eden like the the, the whole process of I, I i love the word mastering nature i was going to say taming but taming is probably not the right word i think mastering is is you know the right framework for this is like when we can do that like we can actually live in um you know in, in a beautiful place so, so i think that's um well so it's interesting really that it's a continuum because i think this mm. often happens because i think it's a false alternative, which uh, is another thing Ayn Rand was really good at pointing out. So I think that this, yeah, so there's this idea of like, okay, there's this, now you're describing it more accurately, but there's this idea of minimally impacted. Now the the green movement would would view that as the Garden of Eden. So they actually mm -hmm. take that idea and they, they apply it to unimpacted uh, nature. And, but then there's this caricature of it's not not to say it's a caricature doesn't mean that it never exists, but it means that it's a caricature of the general phenomenon of of human attempts to impact. Like, yeah, it's the ugliest, like stalest thing, and you're never outdoors and that kind of thing. And then the green movement would add on to that, like totally false stuff, like, oh yeah, you know, you're you're not going to live very long and stuff. Whereas even in those cities, like you're living way longer than you would in the jungle, and yet mm -hmm. there's still there's still it still leaves a lot to be desired. And I think the key is. Like if you view it from a human flourishing perspective, what you're really thinking of is your your positive is like a healthy human environment. But that doesn't mean yes. a healthy human environment includes a lot of different non-human living and non-living things. And you know, just I, I mean, I I practice what I preach. Like I, you know, relative to my income, I probably spend a lot of money and a lot of time to live like you know, much more outdoors than almost anybody I know, like even trying to work outdoors and like go to the beach, you know, going to the beach every day and just really, you know, loving the ocean. And just, cause I really feel that in terms of how much that affects mm -hmm. me. And so I'm all, I'm all for that, but it is. And so mastering is a good kind of 
perspective because what you want to get, I think of nature as wild potential. So wild mm-hmm. potential doesn't mean bad. It means wild yeah. and it doesn't, wild isn't good or bad. It's just like, it's, it's out of your control. And what you want to do is you want to harness the best elements and yes. make them make them serve you. So, and unfortunately I think when you, one, one consequence when you've got these false alternatives is that people who are generally doing the right thing, like they're trying to be productive and, and create progress, they often don't think very carefully about like wh- about really what are the, about creating a wonderful human environment. And so one of my favorite people in this regard is Frank Lloyd Wright, you know, who is an architect and mm-hmm. I think a brilliant architect. And he had this, this combination of really loving just all the amazing things in the world that we live in, like the naturally occurring things, but then wanting to create better things, but, but in a way that isn't just like ugly and totally inconsistent. So like, you know, his famously mm-hmm. falling water, which, you know, very much integrates with the landscape, whereas you see so much other architecture and other stuff. And it's just, I was in Florida the other day and a certain part, it's like a random, terrible, like this is ugly. How could you live in this? And the caricature of someone like me, is like, oh, you don't care. Like as long as we're painting things and building, it's like, no, you need to apply a lot of judiciousness to actually creating a great human environment. But that means that you double down on human flourishing, not that you yes. try to eliminate your impact. Yeah, aesthetics, you know, have sort of you know been forgotten in many ways. Okay, so 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 let's um let's loop back to the leaders. So I I, I really want to dig into this because th- th- this for me is, is interesting. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I actually I I love Ayn Rand's depiction of the you know the you know the the idiot professor um, and James Taggart and all that sort of stuff who are basically you know flawed humans um, attempting to justify their existence and in the process, you know, kind of destroying the shit around them. But I, I'd be curious on sort of what's your take with, you know, I guess leaders and politicians of today, um, you know, the Al Gore types and everything and the Bill Gates maniacs, like who, you know, genuinely seem to be pushing some sort of agenda, which is blatantly insane to anyone who's taken a moment to think about it so <laughs> well so I, I mean i tend to think these things are less obvious than you're portraying them as or though we may agree maybe and, I, and yeah. I wouldn't put okay. and i would put al gore and bill gates in very different uh moral categories not to say i don't have issues with gates but like gore is i think a very consistent kind of villain although even there you know he made a really good speech at steve jobs's funeral so even like you, you know a lot of these characters um are mixed but i, I think the the first observation I want to have, so there's this question, I mean, the way it's often put to me is with, with the kind of stuff I deal with, which is really anti-human thinking, because anti-impact, anti-human impact is really just anti-human, is like, why are humans anti-human? Like, why are smart human, and it's not just, oh, they're deluded. It's not just, oh, they didn't know energy was important, and then all the power got cut off, or like the Texan mm-hmm. who didn't realize, oh yeah, wind and solar doesn't work very well during a snowstorm. It's, it's not that kind of thing. It's like, no, they know full well wind and solar don't work and they know full well wind and solar being opposed for their impacts and they don't care. They just like, and so why does that kind of thing happen? I think the first observation is not unique to the anti-human impact movement. Like throughout history, there have been very smart people who knew in very demonstrable ways that there was going to be a lot of human suffering and death from their policies and yet pursued them Nonetheless, I think communism in the 20th century would be top 
on the list of that in terms of particularly, mm -hmm. you know, once you move, I mean, you could say maybe in 1910, people are confused, but are they confused in 1950, in 1960? You know, when you just had mass murder of tens of millions of people and mass starvation and stuff and, and pushing this kind of thing and just attacking capitalism uncritically. And I think, so it's just a very common phenomenon for smart humans to embrace anti-human ideas, even when they have the evidence that mm. they're anti-human ideas. And I think Ayn Rand's work is, is unique in terms of illuminating this. And um, maybe Atlas Shrugged as a book is most unique. And then also <clears> she has a, a great, some essays, including one called The Age of Envy in her book, um, I believe it's in, it's in the, it, it's now called Return of the Primitive, that collection of essays, if people want to see that, that essay. And she, what she observes is that well, I'll just give my own view. I won't attribute it to her, but I, I was definitely influenced by her where, you know, if you look at, maybe one way to look at this is just ask ourselves like, hey, have there ever been times when we have felt any sliver of like an anti-human motive, like where we've wanted to do something that would hurt other human beings? I think most of us would say at one point or another, we've experienced some sort of envy for other people. Like if somebody, we felt they were like superior to us or better looking or happier. And I'm not saying I'm driven by this. I don't think I'm driven by this uh, very much at all now. And not even that much as a kid, but I've at least felt it where I know what it is. And I think many people are really driven by it. Like there's such a thing as when you see people that you regard in some way as superior to you and you feel inferior. And like one response to that is to want to tear them down. And I think there's, if you look at our society, there's a lot of hostility like to billionaires and to productive people. And it can't just be explained by the fact that oh, some of them don't deserve it because some of them clearly do. And I think there's that kind of envy motivation or what Ayn Rand would call hatred of the good for being the good. And that really drives, I think that really motivates uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of stuff. So in her book, Fountainhead, there's this character Ellsworth Toohey who very much has this kind of motive uh, in Atlas Shrugged, many of the characters, including yeah, uh, yeah. James Taggart have it. I just think that if you look at these anti-human, so if you look at the green movement, what does the green movement say? Well, it says that impact is bad and we should eliminate it. Well, what does that mean? That means that all the really productive people who are making a lot of money by you know, producing particularly like physical goods and services, like those people are bad and who's good? Well, you're good if you do nothing or if you tear down the things of the people who built things, right? So you can even see there, there's kind of a little nice psychological incentive, right? Like you can become superior to others by doing nothing. And those other people are doing a lot whom you somehow think of as superior to you. No, you're actually better than they are. So it's like somebody can, do, can be accomplishing nothing. And it's like, oh, then they can tell, um, you know, Charles Koch, oh no, you're, you're villain. At least I'm not like you. Whereas in reality, Charles Koch, you know, of the infamous Koch brothers, like he's in reality creating oil-based products that people want and paper towels that people want, et cetera. So it's, 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 it's really created this amazing moral incentive, particularly the green movement where, yeah, by doing nothing, like by being a total loser by normal human standards, you are a hero and you're even more of a hero if you tear things down and you're a villain if you actually produce things. And this, that should see, seem familiar like with our current society. Like think about so many of the people who are admired have produced nothing and they're either doing nothing or they're actively tearing things down. And of course they claim to want, oh yeah, I really want the green energy, but they have no, they don't look into it. They don't know how it works. And they're not too concerned that it's being stopped. There's definitely a motive of tearing things down. 
Okay, so so we've got this underlying, you know, envy. I, th I think Ellsworth too is probably actually the poster child for that, you know, because um, you know he 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 kind of represents that uh, envious um, character who you know didn't actually create or build anything for himself, but he just sort of you know emulates the critic that just wants to. To, to earn significance by tearing another down. Actually, T Tony Robbins has a really good framework about this. So you know, he talks about, um, he, he kind of transformed Maslow's hierarchy of needs into what he calls the six human needs. And I think it's the most powerful framework for understanding human action you know, that exists. And wow. th there's this certainty, uncertainty, there's significance, connection, um, and then there's uh, growth and contribution. You can basically understand all human action through uh, the requirement for a human being to meet those needs. And, and the first four needs, so certainty, uncertainty, significance, and connection are like the, the primal physical needs. We all have to meet those in order to, to live and we meet them through different vehicles. Um, and then growth and contribution are sort of like the, the higher level spiritual needs, which not many people meet, but you know, some do as they kind of become more mature humans. But you know, significance is one of these ones where you know, th there is empowering ways to meet the need of significance. You know, it's like you, you create something, you build something, you add some value, you know, you, you know, you, you, you win a race, you, you know, you write a song, whatever. So there's many empowering ways, but, you know, other ways to, to, to meet the need of significance as a human being is to make somebody less significant than you are. So to tear them down, you know, and, and this is sort of where things like envy spawn, but envy is actually a vehicle through which to meet the need of significance in a very you know low level, immature way. And, you know, these days, like, you know, this is where I think, you know, the world is suffering from a lack of, you know, meaning, you know, pe people aren't, you know, pursuing meaning anymore. They're pursuing fucking happiness and happiness is like this, like surface level, you know, to, to me, happiness is like one of the cheapest things to pursue because it's a side effect of pursuing meaning, for example, but, you know, people are pursuing these surface level things. So they, they want to get the, the cheapest, quickest, easiest way to meet their needs. And, you know, with significance in particular is, just tear somebody else down, you know, rip them down, like point out their flaws, be a critic, you know, et cetera. And, you know, the Ellsworth twos of the world, you know, really represent that well. But so, so we've got, you know, envy as one of the drivers. And, you know, would you say that's one of the drivers behind these leaders who are, you know, packaging the anti-human stuff? Or do you think they're kindling that in the masses so that they can perpetuate, you know, this message? I think both, but, but I was more okay. focused on in the leaders and, mm -hmm. and it's, it's, there's really interesting interplay that I don't fully understand, like how much of it is, because, because what we know, I mean, what we know for sure, I, I won't say everyone thinks this, but I, I think it's just, I think it's clearly true that we have thought leaders who, and really the whole, what I would call knowledge systems, the whole, like, you know, all our institutions that are trying to figure out what's true and communicate it to us, like, it's totally saturated by this anti-human idea of eliminating our impact uh, on mm -hmm. the earth. Like, I think that's undoubtedly true, or I think it's undoubtedly true that is an anti-human idea. And so I think there are these psychological things, but you know, whatever is going on, but it can also like reinforce things. Cause like the more that you, like once you buy into that explicitly, then I, I just I imagine there are these different kinds of dynamics that I, I don't fully understand. So for me, the focus in my background is mainly philosophy. Like, uh, like for me, it's to be confident that these things are going on and that they're wrong and then how to deal with them. And in part, that affects how I address people. So when I'm addressing people, I'm not assuming any particular motive. 
Uh, mm. it, it's, it's more like I'm talking to them as if, like I'm telling them, hey, like I'm acting as if, or I'm, I'm assuming, hey, like you really care about your life and other people's lives in some real honest way. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna act on that versus like if I'm, if I'm talking to somebody who believes in climate catastrophe and I just say, oh yeah, well, it's just cause you never really achieved very much. And so that's why you're doing, like that's not very helpful. And it would be yeah, arbitrary yeah, yeah. to apply to them even though if I know on a macro level, that is true. And I think it's particularly, the more you're talking about like the movement people where their identity is wound up in this, the more those motives are going on. And also it's much harder to persuade them. I think, I think it's actually, I've been able to persuade a lot of people on this issue, but the people where it's their identity, it's very hard. So my, my, my archetypical example is Al Gore. Like if Al Gore admitted that I was right about energy, like he would have to say, oh my gosh, my life has been such a net negative in the 100%. world. Like everyone would be 100%. way better off if I had never been here. Like that's a hard thing to do. I think one should, just as a random thing, I, I believe that one should think about one's life in a way that you're willing to admit that. I, 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 when I was 18, I was making some big, like making some big decisions about what I believed or like coming to some big conclusions. And I was like, okay, the, the deal is like, you always have to change your mind if somebody proves you wrong, even if you're 80 and you realize you've been advocating the wrong thing mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. whatever the next 62 years at that point. It's like, you have to do that. I think that should be an attitude that everyone has, but it's a hard attitude to have if you're- It is, it requires a high degree of courage, man. Like, so, so I mean, I was actually in the renewable energy, renewable energy industry when I was 24, 25, 26. Like oh, I, I thought that, that was like, seriously, I was installing solar panels and all that stuff. How, and how, I, old, are you, I thought, how old are you now? So 34. So, okay, so, so it's not been that a while. long ago. Yeah. So, um, and, and I had drunk the Kool-Aid. Like I genuinely thought what I was doing was, you know, helping humanity and that shit. And, and, you know, I, I went through a whole phase of like really kind of, I mean, you know, what one would categorize as kind of lefty social justice warrior type thinking, like, you know, I, I went fucking vegan. I, I did all sorts of crazy shit, right? And, um, and you know, I, I, I've always been a really critical thinker though. So, you know, the things that have always uh, interested me have always been sort of math, physics, philosophy, and kind of where they interplay and, and meet. Mm -hmm. And I, I went into that thinking that I found something, you know, meaningful, but, but I guess luckily my personality made me question everything along the way um, mm. and like I, I've actually been on that side and I took the you know the the hero like I call it I climbed Mount Stupid but you know I realized that you know it was really dumb up here so I like ran back down really quickly and a lot of people don't don't um they they either like what you said they they climb Mount Stupid and they're up the top there and they're like man I've just put all this work into climbing up here and you know I've like staked my identity on this that, um, you know, they, they stay up there for the rest of their lives. They're, they're not willing to actually admit that, hey, I was wrong. And, um, or they're not even, they, or they remain just ignorant to it to the point where, you know, that they, they refuse to acknowledge anything that points to the contrary. Um, and, 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 and I don't know, I, I feel like that's a, that's not to blow smoke up my own asshole, but I feel like that's a really rare trait in the world. Like I genuinely, like I set out to write a book about how veganism was the path to like, you know, absolute health and strength and all that stuff. And by the time I got halfway through writing the book, I was like, okay, this is bullshit. So I like threw it away. Um, <laughs> and, so funny. It is, it is. So, I think it is. And I, yeah, I mean, we don't want to be too self-congratulatory here, but it's, it is, 
I think it's the most important point is something you you can encourage in a society. I mean, some element of it, I don't think you can control because it's ultimately up to people's choice, but at least you want it that this is considered a virtue and that even, you know, admitting that you're wrong, changing your mind, and, but, you know, doing it in a, you have some people who change their mind in really, in ways that just imply, that, that convey that they're just very dogmatic in general, <laughs> like they'll just be totally gung-ho. Like if you're totally gung-ho and act like 100% certain about something, and then it's you, you're convinced that it's substantially wrong, you should not be totally certain about another thing in three months, which often <laughs> yes. happens. It should make you, I mean, you could be certain about certain things, but it's like you want to, and another just sign is you want to, with people talking, you want to see like, do they acknowledge degrees of certainty or uncertainty with different kinds of things? versus no, everything is like, like I'm 100% confident in everything I believe. And it would be like, oh yeah, okay. I was a vegan yesterday, or I was a vegan three months ago, and now I'm carnivore. And I know that that's the be all end all to everything. And nobody can tell me differently. Like that's, that's, that's not what you want, but you want is somebody who, so I think at least as you get older, it should be shifting less quickly, but there should mm -hmm. be these shifts of even, at the very least, there should be the shifts of, it's even if you're in the right direction, it's evolving. Like people would have, would be shocked at how, like how much I think about my own views on energy, like constantly, and I'm challenging them, but it's, it's like, I'm willing to challenge all of them, but it's not like, oh, I'm challenging the fundamentals, but it's just like every little thing about how to explain them, is this exactly right? And even like the issue we just talked about in terms of, okay, what exactly is psychologically driving the leaders versus the followers? Like I'll continue to think about that, for the next mm -hmm. five years and get clearer on that versus feeling like, oh no, I have to have the answer now. And the answer now must be right. And it can't be incomplete yeah. or it can't be wrong. I think what you mentioned there is like the time it takes, like for, for me, what I've tried to cultivate in my life, at least, you know, particularly over the last 10 years as I, you know, cause in my early twenties, I was very like, you know, jumping onto things and like, you know, kind of exploring, right. Discovering as a young, as, you know, as a young guy, um, but you know, what, what I've definitely tried to cultivate more recently as I've matured, um, is finding threads of consistency, you know, like, uh, I, I did a podcast a little while ago with Zuby, um, the, mm. the rapper dude and, and the, the, the title of the podcast was principles. And, you know, like th there's millions of methodologies, like we can do things many, many different ways, but there's, there's certain principles, which are, you know, Lindy compatible, like that they, they actually make sense over time. And these principles don't just disappear tomorrow. Like they're, they're timeless in a sense, because, they they work, um, you know, and there's and and over time they they work more and more. So so that's sort of the linear compatible nature of like you know particular principles. And, and what I try and do in life these days is like find principles that actually work, make sense, you know, and, and that have that have stood the test of time, as opposed to just you know the next fashionable idea that um you know that is popular in the mainstream you know that that's usually for me like if i see something popular in the mainstream that's like the first sign of like okay this is probably hasn't been thought through and and yeah anyway i, I just think that that first principles thinking for me like you know and, and i found these threads across like you know eating naturally, for example, um, you know, like non-processed food and all the fucking junk that people, you know, put into their bodies these days, like Austrian economics, you know, has like these threads of, 
you know, uh, consistency in it that, you know, I also find, you know, in Bitcoin, you know, the energy discussion as well, like, you know, the, the productive human and mastering nature as opposed to being at the whims of the wild, et cetera. So, so there's, there's, there's a lot of consistency across a lot of this thinking. And, um, and it's just, I don't know, it's interesting for me to find other human beings that, that have converged on these through their own paths. And we sort of come to this, you know, this almost contrarian consensus, um, I guess, in the world today. Mm -hmm. I mean, the principles thing. So this is another thing where I definitely recommend if people are interested in principles, check out uh, Ayn Rand. Particularly, she has a book called Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology. And then, um, mm. you know, her heir, uh, philosopher Leonard Peikoff, has a book called Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand. Particularly, chapter four deals with the issue of context. And I think that, you know, one, one important distinction, so she's very into false alternatives. And so in, the, in terms of how we deal with abstractions, including principles, there's this false alternative throughout the history of philosophy called rationalism versus empiricism. And so the empiricists are the rationalists rather the people who would characterize themselves as like, oh, we believe in principles, but the principles would tend to be detached from reality in mm -hmm. numerous mm -hmm. ways. And it would often be like, they're just sort of in their own head and they make up these ideas and that the ideas fit together, but then the ideas go up, you know, they go against reality. And you know the empiricists would be like, oh, we're totally connected to reality. We're only using observation, often what they'll call is we're only using experience. But then they'll never draw anything abstract. So it's just like, oh, I'm looking out, and it's like they look up, and it's like, oh, here blue now. Like that's that's all I know, right? They'll say like you can't know anything. And so you know her idea is that you know you you want your abstractions very precisely grounded in reality. And that means that yeah, means yeah. You, you can, and so we could, it would be interesting to talk sometime about like Austrian economics, where I think a lot of it is grounded in reality. I think some of it is not as grounded uh, in reality and the methodology of it. So it, it often, I think, is a little too deductive from like, okay, I have one thing, like all men act. I know everyone's going to kill me in the Bitcoin community because I'm giving just a, but it's a discussion for another time to be interesting, but like, like something like all men act to achieve ends. And it's like, everything comes from that, but it's not really, that, that there's something there, but it's like an objectivism, it would be like, that's not the starting point. So I don't use first principles. That would be like the fundamental. And the actual way you got it was you observed reality and then you generalize from that, you generalize from that, you generalize from that. And then you see, oh, there's this fundamental thing, like all, if it's true, exactly like all men act to achieve ends or whatever it is. And then you, but you got that by like seeing it in common with everything, including the series of generalizations. So you could present it like deductively, but it's very important. You actually got it inductively. Like you got it mm -hmm. by observing mm -hmm. reality. And so objectivism is very inductive philosophy. So a deduction is crucial. You need to be able to apply your abstractions, but it's, it's this idea of, yeah, it's, it's inductive. And then part of that, just one other aspect, I mentioned chapter four of Peikoff's book is there's this idea of you know, knowledge as contextual. So the key element when you're talking when you're talking about any principle, it's like you need to really understand the context in which the principle was formed. So one example somebody gave to me, I thought was a really good one. Like economics, if you look at the principle, like price controls cause shortages, right? Like price controls cause shortages. Now, so you know, what does that mean? Well, it means if I set the price of gasoline at $1 a gallon, 
and there's way more demand, then what happens is there are way more people willing to pay $1 a gallon than there is gasoline. So it's going to be a shortage. That's it. There's a gen, definitely a general causal truth there, but it mm -hmm. could be like there's some miraculous thing that comes on the market that either makes oil less than $1 a gallon or gives you a substitute that everyone uses, right? In which case the price controls wouldn't have caused a shortage, right? Because there would just be some other extraneous factor. So when you have this idea of price controls cause shortages, you just need to understand it in terms of what it, the actual causality of it, what was the context in which it was induced. It's not like this, this biblical thing that says every, literally every time there is price controls, a shortage will emerge. But it's saying there are these there are these fundamental truths of supply and demand, where if you um, you know if you put if you price you know things at a certain level, and then then you're going to have shortages. I don't have the perfect way of explaining it, but so that that's just an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to have these principles. You don't want to just have them as like the, they're not like commandments. They're these they're these things that are ultimate. And the key is they're based. The the two things are they're based on understanding of cause and effect, like precise understanding of cause and effect, like that's that's any kind of principle of action. And then also you can have principles of, of ends, like what are you going after? And those you also wanna be precise about. I, th I think the one thing I'll just um, mention about that um, is I think what a lot of people probably misunderstand, I think complexity theory, you know, helps here is just just the idea of how everything is interrelated so to your point there about the um the supply shortages it's like you know th there's there's never just a simple you know direct causal relationship because you can't isolate things in the world like everything right. is somehow interrelated so yes as a general principle so, so i guess i'm going to paraphrase what you're saying here as a general principle um you know price control will cause this but like you said something else might occur um in this system which is interrelated it's non-linear um that might like ca causal relationships just you know are very hard to to point at um and and i think is, is that sort of the point that you're making there yeah, right? and, in, in and a it's sense like or? it's like i wish i had a i could explain it more precisely with that example because i'm just not economics is not what i've mastered explaining mm. because some sometimes it's uh I mean, if, if you think like, because the idea is that some, sometimes you'll summarize that the key is that what's going on is there's a certain causal understanding underlying price controls cause shortages that is, is not, is a little bit more sophisticated and nuanced than every time there's price controls, it'll cause shortages, sort of a, a summary of it. So I'll give you an example that I know very well. So in objectivist ethics, there's the idea of intellectual independence is key to you know the individual succeeding right and so the idea is so what is the idea there well intellectual independence means i'm thinking on my own like i'm using my own mind to determine what's true and so ayn rand would say like this is it this advances your life like being intellectually independent advances your life right but it's it's based on the causality that my only access to the truth is my own mind. That's the only access that I can control. Anything else is just, I'm just at the mercy of others. So I have to use, I have to use the nature of my own, I have to respect that and I have to be independent. So that's true. And so you can summarize it as intellectual independence is good for your life, but it's just a summary. It's not like, it's not a declaration of, oh, this is always exactly gonna happen. So for example, somebody, you could make up the situation. Oh, somebody like, they just, 
instead of, uh, it's a stupid situation, but like imagine another Alex and let's say my parents had pressured me to become a rabbi, which they did it, but they didn't definitely didn't pressure me to become what I became either. And I'm like, okay, that's not gonna be good. And I'm like, I go to the rabbinical school and then I find a, a billion dollars on the street. And you're like, oh, see, it was good to be dependent on your parents. And it's like, no. And it doesn't mean that intellectual independence isn't good. First of all, there are all these other ways, but that not mm -hmm. being intellectually independent mm -hmm. will harm you. But the key was, it's still true that your own independent thought is your only access to reality. And so independence is good for your life was really summarizing that. It, but it, whereas it is always true that your own mind is your only independent access to reality. So that's like, you can sometimes formulate it, particularly when you nail the causality, you can formulate it in a universal uh, kind of way. And often what happens is you can think of there are principles, like there are pure causal principles that just describe cause and effect. And sometimes there are what, what you could call virtues, like principles about what's, like what's good for a certain goal. And usually you can, you can formulate the ones about cause and effect a little more precisely than what's good for a certain goal, because when you have a certain goal, there are those other intervening factors that you mentioned. So it's not all, it's not like, oh, if you're intellectually independent, that means every time you think on your own, you're going to have an orgasm or be a millionaire. <laughs> I wish. Um, <laughs> so, okay. We've got 23 minutes left or 22 now. Um, yeah. And there was a bunch of things I wanted to get into. So we've got two options here. Should we do a part two where we save some of the, the energy discussion or do you think we can jump into a few of those? I think I'll, let's just do it. Let's just do it. Um, Cause I'm finishing a book. So my schedule is kind of sketchy. I'm going to, I'll give okay. very, I'm, I'm very good at give. I can also give brief answers. So let's, let's <laughs> I'll give very brief answers. No, this has been a, this has been a great discussion because like, this is, this is what I like to do on wake up. It's like, it, it's different. It's not just the, the, the box that people um, assume the, the person coming on is from so okay um let, let's jump into uh the environmental damage that is done with renewables um in particular things like uh solar and wind um mm. and then as a, as a subset to that sort of the average rate of return for the energy input into renewables so when i usually make the argument against renewables and again i'm, I'm nowhere near as deep into this as you are but i say look to build a fucking solar panel or wind you know turbine you have to go and dig up all the shit out of the ground first, you know, the rare earth, you know, the, the cobalt and all the other crap. Um, and like you, you basically take the energy up front and then hope that you're going to produce it back uh, long term. So, so can you talk about, yeah, both the energy damage done in producing this stuff and, and what the actual energetic rate of return is for these things? Sure. So I'll, I'll describe it in terms of what's sort of what's involved in the process of of producing these renewables, and I'm going to focus on solar and wind because the renewable renewables. movement is mostly anti-hydro. So, you know, I call it, mm -hmm. I call them unreliables. Um, so, you know, there's this idea of like environmental impact and I don't like that as a, con so it's one of these package deals because it packages together ways we impact environment that's good for us and ways we impact environment that's bad for us and ways we impact environment that has nothing to do with us, but we care about it because we think the rest of nature is superior. So like I'm focused on negative impacts in the sense of anti-human um, impacts, but you could also, so you could look at two kinds of impacts that are of concern. So one is just the use of the raw materials, which is not to say it's bad, but there's such a thing as a raw material that is less plentiful in the earth than another. So you have to be aware of that. And then you can also talk about just pollution or safety uh, type impacts, which you know are side effects of different processes, often the, the mining of it. 
So with mm -hmm. the, one thing that's interesting about just the material of it, well, there's one thing in terms of just, it, because it's not a dense source of energy, it takes up a huge amount of land. So it takes up a huge amount of resource that way. And it also takes a lot of resource because it's very spread out. So you need a lot of materials. So if you look at different materials estimates for solar panels and wind turbines, even leaving aside the unreliability versus like a nuclear or coal, it's many times more just raw materials are needed for those things because, because it's, it's, it's a dilute source of energy. So it's very spread out. So it's a lot of land and it's more of the other materials as well. When you start to bring in batteries, there's another interesting issue with resources where mm -hmm. nobody is really thinking about how much lithium there is in the world. And it's hard to know with any of these things because reserves doesn't mean exactly how much there is in the earth. But there are some reasons I've become pretty scared recently about just like actual amount of lithium in the world compared to these plans that people have. And that is something that people should be thinking about. And I think they're not because it's such a kind of religious and statist approach where we're, we want to be green, we want to be renewable, and the government's going to make it happen. And so there's no actual mm. market where people need to think about it. And so everyone's just committing, like everyone's committing to an amount of batteries in effect that we have no idea if we can make, let alone if it's, it's economic, which it's not even remotely economic. So I would say in terms of the resources used, there's sort of the land, the materials that are needed to build these big things, and then certain questions of supply with some of them, with some of the materials, particularly involving batteries that nobody is really uh, thinking about. And so, the, and then in terms of, you know, the negative pollution or safety type impacts, which I think you're probably getting at, you know, particularly in the mining, uh, there's a lot of that. And I think it's important that it's not, a, it's not a reason why these things shouldn't be pursued, but they really need to be acknowledged so that you can pursue these things in a humane way. And part of what happens with this mythology that these are green and clean and stuff, is nobody cares too much or has cared too much about where they're being mined and how they're being mined. Like, you know, there's this cobalt, you know, kids getting cobalt in the Congo and these toxic lakes in different kinds of, in different parts of China. And now we're hearing about slave labor as well, which is a different issue, but also a humanitarian type of issue. So the key is when you're, you're mining for these vast amounts of materials, including materials that have high toxicity, you really got to be careful about safety practices. And there is very little concern in part because there's this effort to drive prices down. So that's, that's what I'd say. And then in terms of the energy ROI, um, I think those, so I'm no, I don't consider myself an expert in those types of things. And, and, all, and in part, the reason I'm not an expert is because I don't trust most of them. I think the, main, the key thing is economic ROI. Because the real mm -hmm. thing is how much resource, including how, how much economic resource, how much value, including human time, does it take to produce a given amount of energy for a given purpose? And the way you figure that out is you just let free people produce uh, mm -hmm. and consume and compete as they judge best. Because I, like, what I don't like at all is these government statist planner types saying, like, oh, I have this vision and this is going to be the energy ROI and like, it doesn't really matter. I don't believe that you're telling the truth about it or that you even know, but yeah, we need, we need just, so the energy ROI, you could think about that as that is one, one of many economic factors that people in the market should consider. But for us as outsiders, the key is just, we want the most economic thing, which means we need a free market with no subsidies and no mandates or other preferences. 100%. I think I think the subsidies piece is like really really important because it's um you know when I when I talk to people about you know things like bitcoin and economics and everything I I say you know money and economics is sort of the the measurement of uh 
human scarce human resources time and energy and scarce natural resources and and when we start to fuck with that stuff um and you know either subsidize it or you know inflate it uh, through money printing or whatever the case is we, we actually distort the signals to the point where we're actually wasting human time human energy and natural resources like we're, we're wasting this shit and that's like my biggest um gripe i guess you know when people talk about um, you know, I'm going to mention Bitcoin here, but when people talk about Bitcoin, it's like they say, oh, yeah, and they start arguing about, oh, yeah, but Bitcoin's got, you know, uh, this much of a mix of renewables. I'm like, who gives a shit? That's not what Bitcoin's here to fix. Like Bitcoin eliminates waste, like bureaucratic waste. And, um, you know, uh, because Bitcoin is, you know, tied to the second law of thermodynamics, like from an economic standpoint, like it ties you know, I kind of call it like the study of what matters and matter. Like, so it's like empiricism, rational, rationalization, like it ties them together um, in a way that, you know, if you perform a bad economic calculation, you can't bail yourself out. Um, and as a result, what it does is it, it helps compound good decisions and it helps correct bad decisions very quickly. And, and so Bitcoin's biggest impact, you know, from an environmental perspective on the world is going to be efficiency through eliminating waste. And at the moment, you know, we're sitting here talking about like how bad fossil fuels are, whilst, you know, you've got dickhead statists like completely burning through resources by destroying the money by you know making stupid regulations like the masks thing over the last um, eighteen months was a perfect example. Like uh, I was reading some statistics somewhere, like thirty billion disposable masks get dumped, you know, every month. Well, that's, <laughs> see, I think that I think that's trivial compared. So I would just focus from a moral perspective on the time, human time mm. that's wasted, and how little value you place on human time. So this really shows yeah. the anti-human nature of the anti-impact movement. Like notice we talk about efficiency of everything, including human time. So efficiency really means deficiency for humans. There's that, you know, there's this classic episode of that show bullshit with Penn and Teller, where I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a recycling mm -hmm. one. And they're trying to like see how many different stupid bins the guy will sort his trash into. And it's like, oh, there's one bin for your toilet paper that you just, I mean, it's like the guy will accept seven bins and you just think, what are you doing with your life that this, and you call this efficient, like, by what standard, by what goal is it efficient to spend all your time uh, sorting through trash? And it just, and it's, you just notice in economics, but particularly just in personal life, people don't value time. And so with the masks thing, um, particularly outdoor masks, which made no sense at all. Like what one thing that was revealing, this was true with COVID in general, is just no valuing of free human time, as in, as in human time that we are free to choose what we do. And like any, whatever you want to say about masks in terms of their efficacy, they're unbelievably unpleasant and restrictive. And I mean, it makes it so much harder to work there. And like, and the way it was discussed was not at all like, like if you thought, okay, it's really necessary to wear it in these indoor situations. Okay, great. But you should acknowledge like, yeah, this sucks, but I'm protecting you from this other thing. So I really, but it's no, it's just like, oh, everyone wear your mask, wear it forever. Even if you're vaccinated, wear it like it just shows, it's just a little microcosm and all the environmental stuff is much worse of like no value of human time. And so it just shows the difference between like, is your goal, is your primary moral goal advancing human flourishing or is it eliminating human impact? And if it's eliminating human impact, human time is actually your your enemy. And it's, it's certainly enemy, the first yeah, thing yeah, that yeah. gets sacrificed. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a very, very good point. I, I mean, I did a tweet storm before I got banned off Twitter, uh, you know, about that. I was like, imagine. Oh, you're banned now? 
yeah, I got banned for like, you know, the thought police finally got me, you know, but um, I uh, like I, I did a tweet storm about like, you know, I was in Brazil for a little bit and I was just like looking at how much like in a shopping center, like people are fucking lined up, like no one can get inside a shop, no one can do anything, like everything takes, you know, 10 times as long, you know, I had to minimize the amount of employees in there, then they've hired these you know, useless people to just sit there and fucking rub surfaces all day, like fucking, you know, hypochondriac. So it's like, and, and I'm sitting there looking at this and just dawned on me, I was like, how much productivity have we fucking wasted over some moron status to want to fucking cling on to, you know, some whatever semblance of pathetic control they have to like, you know, prove to us that they actually give a shit about us, which they don't. But anyway, that's a, that's a whole other rabbit hole. We've got 10 minutes. Um, Energy independence with renewables. So like, you know, I, I was speaking with, I don't know if you know, Alex Gladstein uh, from the Human Rights Foundation. No, so having a, okay. So we were having a little bit of a debate, you know, he was sort of talking about, you know, solar renewables. And I was like, dude, you're fucking wasting your money. Um, and and he, he kind of tried to make the point about, you know, California, the energy grid is a big disaster and, you know, you know, they're going to, it's going to keep getting worse. So he's like, look, I want to have, you know, batteries and solar panels and everything so that I'm, you know, energy independent. Now, like, is this, does he is know this... what's creating the problem now? Oh, he does. He does. So he, he, actually acknowledges that. He, he does acknowledge that, but he's like, look, I can't do anything to change that. So he goes, I'm going to try and, you know, make my situation independent. So, so do yeah, you think get a that's a diesel generator? Well, that, that's kind of what I said. So, so, so talk me through like energy independence, both, you know, with the, the argument for renewables and, you know, is it myth or fact? And how do we get, you know, energy independence in the absence of that bullshit? So, so you mean as an individual? Because there's this... As an individual, exactly. It's a term. Yeah, as an individual. Yeah. Okay. So, so, I mean, I mean, so there's this idea, there's this kind of, it's like the modern subsistence farmer ideal applied to energy, which is like, I wanna create my own energy. There's that type of thing, which I think that's a weird kind of thing to want. And then there's the, the thing that I think is legitimate is you wanna be, and I think about a lot being a Californian and planning to live here at least for a little while longer. Like, how do I protect myself? I mean, it's basically like, how do I protect myself from shortages and blackouts? Like that's the real thing. And mm. I think one thing is you just have to recognize what the main problem, which is the main problem is a total devaluing of reliable energy and mm -hmm. a privileging mm -hmm. of unreliable energy. Like, as I like to point out, it's very easy to generate reliable energy for every situation, certainly reliable electricity. It's been done it all over the world for generations, all kinds of extreme conditions. You just have reliable, resilient power plants and a secure fuel supply. So like it's super simple. So you have to recognize that. The, and it, the, having a grid is amazing for a whole bunch of reasons. I mean, it allows you to just have huge differences in your demand and everything operate totally smoothly versus if you're trying to be self-sufficient, like any significant increase in demand you have, like you have to buy a whole new supply infrastructure just for that one time. So the grids are great. So the, the issue is our grid is terrible because of these unreliable policies and these anti-reliability policies. What do you do? And I think you just have to calculate like within what's allowed to you, what is the most cost-effective way to give me um, backup, you know, and, and including given what I expect in the future. So I think, you know, the kind of the most obvious thing is, um, you know, diesel generator is one way of doing it. I mean, there might be restrictions around that. I mean, if you're really rich, you can buy a lot of batteries, uh, but mm -hmm. like batteries to power your house for days and like charge your car for days, like that is really, really expensive. If it was cheap, mm -hmm. then everyone 
would just do it. So I would say that, yeah, rich people, like if you're rich, you should look at these options. You have to recognize that none of these, these are just band-aids that you can afford if you're rich and they may cost mm. more than, than you think. But for the average person, there is no way for them to become quote, self-sufficient. And they're just at the mercy of the grid. And that's why we need to fight for much better policies. Yeah, okay. So, so do you think the, um, the push for, you know, like, you know, there's all this talk about, you know, mini grids and all this sort of shit and like kind of, you know, decentralizing grids and making them smaller and more sufficient, uh, self-sufficient through, you know, using sunlight and wind and everything. Yeah, okay, so right. do you think that's, that's, a, that's an entire that's myth? Well, okay. so anything that's contrived around the idea of using dilute intermittent sunlight and wind, I it should at least be incredibly implausible that this is a good idea. I mean, you look at like everything in our civilization is highly controllable sources that can give us as much energy as we need when we need it. And if you look at the, the, the two, really the three leading forms, if you look at fossil fuels, which is 80% of the world's energy and then nuclear and then hydro, they all have in common, uh, particularly fossil fuels and nuclear, like they are naturally stored energy. So nature stores the energy for us. Even with hydro, it evaporates the water, brings it to the top of the river, which is crucial. If we had to do that ourselves, it'd be a pain. It naturally concentrates the energy above all in nuclear. And then it's naturally abundant, which is not fully mm -hmm. true for hydro. Hydro is limited. But like, so what we have is every form of energy that really works to power civilization is a naturally stored, concentrated, abundant source of energy that then we release the energy mm -hmm. in an mm -hmm. on-demand way. And so when you're talking about, oh no, let's, let's use something that's not concentrated, that's not stored, and then let's try to have a bunch of process around that, that is very dubious and nobody is actually making it work. Right now, it's just a parasite on the reliable stuff. So I, I talk a about this a yeah. lot at ener energytalkingpoints.com. So this, it could be, and in general, like the scale of the grid is a huge um, advantage just because it gives you like, again, like you just have much more flexibility the more the smaller it is, the more you sort of have to overbuild things for the situations where you need more. Now it could be there's some economic way with some future small modular nuclear reactor. Like all this stuff is totally untested. But in general, I would just point out that this push is all about using more unreliables. It's not about any actual problem generating low-cost reliable electricity. That's super easy to do with the modern grid with reliable power plants that are resilient with, with reliable fuel supply. So there is no problem that they're solving, except their desire to use solar and wind, which is really a religious desire motivated by their idea of eliminating human impact. And they think solar and wind is somehow natural and low impact, and then they discover it's not. And so then they oppose that, which just shows it's an mm -hmm. anti-energy movement. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I actually had a point in here that I wanted to discuss about like um, energy density, but I think you just, you know, just nailed it there. Yeah, with... the more concentrated, the more concentrated, the better, particularly for mobility, but also for everything. Because the smaller something is to transport, like the more globally scalable it is. Even if it's in, like that's why coal is great. Like you can move it anywhere really quickly. Nuclear mm -hmm. material, gas is harder. So it's a yeah, yeah, and 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 I mean that that for me also, you know, when, when I think about you know energy density, like to me that just naturally ties into you know. The, the most efficient use of something, you know, as opposed to dispersing and diluting it. And, and like, I, I would also argue that the amount of time, energy, effort, money that's been spent and wasted on, you know, these 
I love how you call them the unreliables, but imagine all of those resources having been spent towards actually building functional grids with energy dense um, sources. Like we would be so much better at, you know, using that stuff. And like, you know, if you had a competitive free market towards energy, like we would be driving the price of energy and the efficient, you know, extraction of that energy downwards. Um, but yeah, instead, 100%. We're, we're, yeah, instead we're, 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 we're subsidizing these unreliables with the with fossil fuels and we're making fossil fuels more expensive and we're hiding the real cost of the renewables. So we're getting the worst of both fucking worlds. Well, and it's unfortunately much, much worse. I agree with everything you're saying, but it's unfortunately much, much worse than that because the real cost, so there's the consequence of like, yeah, the energy becomes more expensive. But what most people don't get is that makes everything else more expensive. So you can mm. think about, oh, we're wasting a lot of time building these solar panels and wind turbines. But that's nothing compared to the amount of time that's wasted because energy is more expensive than it otherwise could be. I mean, you think about just quickly, I, I, I could go five minutes over if, if we need to, but go, go, go. Yeah, sure. um, what I call the, you know, the private jet problem, which is like mm. most of us, including me, cannot afford to fly on private jet, even though we'd love to. Like private jet is an amazing machine. I, I like to call it like a, it's a form of machine labor, machines doing work for us, but it's just not cost effective, including just because the fuel is so expensive. But imagine, you know, if you could get energy cheap enough, you could afford a private jet, uh, particularly if it was if it was autonomous or you know robotic, right? Because ultimately the price of energy would make every material cheaper because energy goes into everything. So you'd make every little component cheaper and most people could afford a private jet. But if you make energy expensive, things like a washing machine that right now it's cost effective for most of us to have a washing machine do labor for us, that wouldn't be cost effective. Our time would not be productive enough where we mm -hmm. could afford a washing machine and then we're washing all of our stuff by hand, which inter interestingly is embraced by the green movement, right? I was like, exactly. our clothes. it just shows how anti-human it is. So that's, yeah. that's just like every the you know the more cost effective energy is the more cost effective everything is the less cost effective energy is the less cost effective everything is so you just it's just this unlimited tax on human time and of course it's like any of those things it hurts the poorest people by far the most because they they never can you know they're prevented from getting energy in the first place or just their food clothing shelter all these basic things become more expensive so it's, that's why I'm so emphatic about we need to understand how fundamental energy is because energy is our ability to use machines to improve our lives. And so again, the cost of energy determines the cost of everything. And we should be obsessed with lower cost energy, more <laughs> reliable energy, more versatile energy, more types of machines, and then more of a scale of energy. And the world doesn't care at all. We totally ignore billions of people with no energy. And we have no fear whatsoever of any of these energy policies of losing our own energy. And I think it's ultimately mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. our driving goal, whether we know it or not, is eliminating human impact. And when that's your focus, you don't even think about human flourishing and humans using energy. That's why we're up cry about polar bears moving from one piece of ice to another, but we don't care at all about 3 billion people not having energy. So the key thing is to reset the framework and say, no, the goal, the primary moral goal is advancing human flourishing. Like that's number one. And then number two is saying like cost-effective energy is fundamental to human flourishing and the world needs far more of it. And we haven't talked much about climate, but whatever you think about our impact on climate, you have to recognize two things. One is what I said about energy and human flourishing is true. And number two, is it 
oh, I said a little bit about climate before, it applies to climate because energy gives us the ability to master climate. And, and any opinion you're gonna have about the future of climate needs to be grounded in the reality, which is that we are far safer from climate than we've ever been, thanks to fossil fueled machines making us safe, like irrigation systems and sturdy buildings and heating and cooling. So anyone who talks about climate and they don't recognize that we have that we are safer from climate than anyone in history, and that that's due to fossil fuels. They know nothing. I don't care if yeah. they're a climate scientists. Yeah. You yeah. are ignorant if you don't understand uh, the, today's actual livability of climate, and if you don't understand climate mastery, you don't understand anything. It'd be like somebody who understood like I don't know the disease of you know like the disease of polio, but like they didn't know there was a polio vaccine. And they're like, oh, everyone should be terrified of polio. And it's like, oh no, well, we can we can get rid of polio. And it's like that with like, okay, even if it gets a little warmer or there get to be more storms or that kind of thing, like we have the vaccine, we have energy. Mm. I think the solution for a lot of these maniacs is we we need to we need to put them on a private jet and we need to drop them off in the middle of Africa and then just fly away and just leave them to see how well and they bring the best enough. Africans. I mean, cause you know, in Africa, <laughs> people are much more, I mean, not that I have a full read, but you know, where I, when I've been talking to people, I mean, any, basically anyone who lives in a poor place or a quote natural place is not a so-called environmentalist. Like you exactly. can't live in those places and be against human impact. You're like, no, I want to be in the place where I walk in some doors and there's every kind of food I could ever imagine. Like that's what you- hundred percent. We need to swap their places, man. So I'm going to end on one final thing. I think your, 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 your note about energy being, you know, so fundamental. And, and I mean, you know, I'm the, the most Bitcoin proponent on the face of the fucking planet. But see, for me, like this, this is why I love Bitcoin because it's, it's fundamentally tied like through proof of work to energy. Like it is the most thermodynamically sound, possible money that could ever exist and what i think the only way i think we actually you know win the energy war is by tying economic reality to energy reality and that's what bitcoin fundamentally does the only reason these clowns can actually continue to to perpetuate and continue to to push this you know anti-human agenda this anti-energy agenda is because they in the short term have the capacity to create the illusion of making wealth by creating fraudulent wealth right like making money is not making wealth like you know producing money out of thin air doesn't actually create wealth but it gives the illusion to a couple of these idiots that um you know wealth can be preserved while the rest of us become impoverished you know economically and energetically speaking but bitcoin by tying economics by tying money to energy something that cannot be forged something that cannot be faked you actually have a foundation upon which to do all the things we're sort of discussing from from a from an energetic standpoint um, and and for human flourishing. In the absence of that, you know, when we can lie about the economic reality, we can we can basically tell ourselves that you know, in Ayn Randian terms, that A equals B, when in reality it fucking doesn't. Um, and and I think that um anyway, that that's my two cents. About I like I like that, that reference. I mean, my, my point about Bitcoin. So I don't. I mean, I've not studied this even one one thousandth as much as you can, but what I do think is really important is I talked this on Stefan Lavera's, I think that's his name, podcast. So if people want to see that, we had a whole different discussion there, which people might be interested about how to take pride. But I think the key is if you, there's definitely a huge value in non-statist, non-inflatable currency, like I believe that very 
strongly. I don't have the same confidence in Bitcoin in particular, just I haven't studied the realm or like proof of stake and proof of work. I just haven't studied those things, but like there's a huge value in like real currency. And then the other thing is uh, there's like, you should be proud of using energy to do things that are good. So if you think Bitcoin is doing this very important thing with currency, like you should be very proud of it using energy and you should not be pounded into saying like, oh, let's use these unreliables or let's lie about it, which is this crazy lies being told about Bitcoin, like, oh, 76%. Like if you, here's the bottom line. If you're using significantly more energy going forward in one way or another, you're using more fossil fuels. You're sure as hell not using mostly 100%. solar and wind. So don't lie about it. Why lie? If you believe in honest money, why are you talking dishonestly in terms of energy? So just understand energy, I, understand why it's important and be proud of producing value using machines and machine food, including fossil fuels, which are going to be our best machine food for a long time to come. 100% agree. I think that's a potential trap that you know, Bitcoiners need to avoid. And it, I mean, what you just mentioned, the proof of work, proof of stake, just, just, just for your reference, proof of work is tying money to energy, the unforgeable you know, uh, constituent of the universe, um, whereas proof of stake is literally central banking and just making shit up. So, so, so that's where like, you know, when you think about like, you know, you think about Bitcoin is sound energy money, crypto, which I call crypto, and and all the other fucking junk is literally um, digital modified central banking that has no grounding or rooting in reality. And that's like where all of the crypto is a big fucking scam. And it's, I, I believe it's a state attack on Bitcoin in much the same way as, you know, the state is trying to attack you know, nuclear and energy and fossil fuels because, you know, Bitcoin is grounded in securing the money through the unforgeable work of transforming energy into a network that that's what it does and and whenever like a quick hack for you is whenever you hear proof of stake and all these fucking lefty communist ethereum monkeys and all of that they're literally they they are using the narrative that the al gores of the world are using that hey energy production energy use is bad so we should go and create a you know a fake system here that um that doesn't use any energy because apparently that's better for us it's such a scam but anyway Interesting. Yeah, it's a very interesting issue. Hopefully, I'll learn more about it over time. Dude, I'll send you an article which which talks about you know the second law of thermodynamics and how Bitcoin is sort of tied into that. I think that'll be right up your alley. But awesome, anyway, man. oh yeah, everyone check out. I forgot to mention energytalkingpoints.com. You're probably going to give me an opportunity yep. to say that, but just so I remember, energytalkingpoints.com. So that is where you can sign up for my newsletter, which I highly recommend. Also, you'll learn a lot mm -hmm. of cool stuff there. And then, uh, well. I'm the Alex here who's actually on Twitter still, and I hope not to get kicked off. So for now, um, twitter.com slash uh, Alex Epstein. Sweet. Um, and so they're the two primary places that people can find you. You, you also run a podcast, right? Uh, I have two. That? I have one called Power Hour. And so you'll learn mm -hmm. about these if you're on my list. That's why I focus on that. Mm -hmm. But I have one called Power Hour, which is now every two weeks. And then I have one mm -hmm. you can see behind me called the Human Flourishing Project, which is about some of these broader philosophical issues, particularly a lot about personal flourishing and, and a lot about uh, productive work and how to how to do a lot of it and enjoy it at the same time. Sean, that one together, because, you know, I mean, for me, you know, Bitcoin is about human flourishing. So I love, uh, I love that concept. But anyway, thank you again for coming on. Um, I know you're, you're busy. Um, can't wait to, to when, when's the release date for the new book? Do you know yet, or are you still sort of uh, in the It's supposed week? to be February 22nd. Uh, it's, I, it won't be final until it's, you see it on Amazon, but it's, okay. uh, early next year.
Uh, for sure, Sweet. early next year. Sweet. Awesome, man. Well, pumped for that. Thank you again for taking the time. And, um, and we'll definitely stay in touch. All right. Thanks, uh, Alex. Progress, man. Absolutely.